Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host and your narrator, spring Jack. And I'd like to thank all of you listeners for tuning in. Regular listeners, it's always a pleasure to have you guys tuning in and listening to the show. And to all new listeners, if this is your first episode, thank you for tuning in. But please allow me to take this time to give you a brief disclaimer. And that is, this show has been considered by some to be offensive. So if you are soft-skinned, sensitive, or otherwise considered to be a bit of a pussy by your friends, family, and or loved ones or workplace, I'll give you a few seconds to turn this podcast off. And thank you for sticking around. I am back. I'd also like to take this time to give you the brief heads up that I don't own any of the commercials played in this show. They're all fake. None of them exist. Uh, None of the companies exist, rather, because it is my most sincere desire to provide for you an ad-free listening experience that you can enjoy without feeling like you're being bombarded with advertisements while you're at work or driving or, you know, doing whatever it is you do and when you listen to this. And uh, I play them on the show because I think they're fucking funny. So, ha. And seeing as I'm listed in the United Kingdom as a comedy podcast, I might as well act accordingly. And I will get right to this show's meat and potatoes after a brief message from this fake company that does not sponsor me. It's MMA! Don't miss the upcoming match of Brazil's Luis Cardoso versus Vice Beach's Troy Meatpacker. Half of them don't speak much English, the other are foreign. It's the noble Eastern art of eviscerating your opponent with a kidney punch while you're both wearing swimming trunks. MMA! It's a combination of skills, guts, wit, and the psychotic desire to give someone brain damage. Mixed martial arts, mixing kung fu, homoerotic wrestling, bloodlust, and merchandising. I want to see some blood, you pussies! Only on pay-per-view. God bless America. All right, so today we're going to be talking about the legendary curses of the Muramasa Blade. Uh, Muramasa Blades are famous samurai swords, but in general, swords of renowns are the objects of many mythical, or mystical, heroic, and even tragic legends. Uh, fueled by tales of bloodshed and conquest, stories about various swords throughout history have grown to fantastical proportion, combining fact and fiction until the two blend into some perverted sense of history. In ancient Japan, however, swords were regarded as the soul of the samurai, and they symbolized the samurai's power and prowess on the battlefield. To the samurai, the possession of this dangerous instrument instills a fear and air of self-respect and responsibility, which is not a bad thing to have if you're carrying a weapon. Carrying the sword is a symbol of what the samurai upholds in his mind and heart, which would be loyalty and honor. And because these weapons were placed in such high regard, so were swordsmiths that made them. They were considered just artists of their time. The esteem placed on Japan's ancient swordsmiths was so tremendous that some of them, at one point or another, became essentially celebrities, if not more than that. Uh, They became usually more famous than the samurai that carried their sword. And among the greatest and most legendary of these swordsmiths was a guy, uh, Sango Muramasa. The the background on him is kind of hazy. I mean, good luck finding anything that's not straight out of an anime book, but a few things are known for sure. So, and that is that Muramasa lived and pursued his sword-making craft during the Muramaki period, which was between 14th and 15th century AD in feudal Japan. Uh, He founded the Muramasa school and passed down his sword-making art style to his students. 
and his legacy continued for 200 years. Both Muramasa and his sword-making school were known for their extraordinary quality and the exceptional sharpness of the blades, making their weapons greatly prized and highly sought after by warriors and generals in the 1500s. Muramasa was an incredible swordsmith to the point that people regarded him as one of the finest that ever lived. Although he had incredible talent, he was also known to be deeply fucking disturbed. Aside from the quality and sharpness of his swords, he also gained notoriety for his rather volatile and violent nature, and some believed a dark curse or evil spirit emanated from his weapon as a result of his, let's just say, bad temper. I only use the term bad temper because I did a fair amount of research on what that meant, that statement, and I couldn't really find anything concrete, nothing that I would quote as a, you know, historical fact, at least, and I don't want to malign this guy's name already worse than it has been. But essentially, he was half crazy was essentially what everybody said but i think most geniuses are um but some rumors began with his abrasive and venomous personality so obviously he was a brilliant swordsmith as i said he was also purported to be insane and prone to flying into violent fits of a fit of violent rage during which he'd lash out at people that were unlucky enough to be standing within arm's reach or sword's reach and his unbalanced mind Teetered on the brink of complete insanity, combined with his relentless perfectionism and unbridled passion for crafting lethal swords to congeal into an unstable mix of genius, bloodlust, intense focus, and insanity, so all these qualities are said to be passed on to the katana he forged. Uh, adding to this was Muramasa's alleged habit of feverishly praying to whoever would listen that his sword become the great destroyers, and his swords gained a rather ominous reputation despite their popularity and high demand. So just imagine, like, a, one of those guys that is sitting next to you at a bus stop, mumbling to himself and just speaking incoherently, making swords like a completely lucid craftsman, but just wishing all sorts of dark shit on him. So numerous dark and sinister qualities were attributed to the supposed curse of the Muramasa swords, which is probably the most famous aspect of them now. Perhaps the most persistent was that the sword had a tendency to possess their wielders, in a sense, uh, sending them into a berserker battle rage and in some versions of these stories, granting them superior swordsmanship and bestowing upon them uh, temporary superhuman strength and resistance to pain and damage, essentially. Uh, the cursed Muramasa swords were also said to have a thirst for blood that needed to be satisfied, and it didn't matter if it was the enemy or the owner or allies, and it oftentimes would force them to commit suicide to appease the bloodlust of the sword. It was often said that as soon as the Muramasa blade was drawn, it ruthlessly demanded blood before it could be put back into its scabbard, meaning almost certain doom for its wielder if there was no one else around to vent the sword's bloodlust upon. Even when not drawn, the swords were said to sometimes hungrily call out to be released or to try and compel their owners to go out hunting for some poor asshole to murder. Although undeniably potent weapons and they were formidable in battle, the Dark Curse made the swords and their wielders dangerous for everybody around them. This is all legend, according to the, the curse. Many tales sprung up of Muramasa swords turning on their owners, that, making them lash out and strike down whoever was around and drink the blood of anybody within reach, including not only enemies, but like I said, allies, and sometimes even family members, which the wielder could do nothing to stop while he held in thrall the sword's evil frenzy. Tales describing samurais armed with Muramasa swords lashing out at, at close friends, allies, and family as they watched helplessly as their own bodies cut them down were numerous. It wasn't just a one-time deal, and there actually were 
stories about it, although I would be more inclined to attribute it to other psychiatric issues and not necessarily a curse. Uh, at their most bloodthirsty and rage-fueled, the swords were said to hardly discriminate between friend and foe and use their owners merely as instruments with which to help them kill. It was not uncommon to hear of owners of Mormasa swords slowly going insane as they were warped and twisted by their weapon's demonic will, sometimes just killing themselves to escape the dark madness that felt like it was turning their mind into a prison. Windsor Real Estate. For super prestige, top value, investment grade, lifestyle defining, timeless class but effortlessly informal. Live your life like it's out of a catalog. In an environmentally precarious area, biodiversity, seismic turbulence, and scarce resources, nothing makes more sense than building a French chateau with a 25-acre lawn in the desert. Fabulous views. Look down on people. Live the American dream. Residing in a mansion waited on by immigrants who hate you. Windsor Real Estate. Real estate at the highest price imaginable. It's who you are. So the sinister reputation that the Mormasa Blades had eventually ended up being further fueled when Tokugawa Shogun, which was the last feudal government in Japan, and it was established in 1603 by, a guy, by the uh, Shogun Tokugawa Ieyasu, who firmly believed that the Mormasa Blades were cursed and blamed them for the deaths of many of his friends, allies, and relatives. Um, understandably so, because apparently this guy's father and his grandfather were both cut down when they were, they were overcome, allegedly, by a murderous trance while wielding such swords. Tokugawa even claimed that he had been badly cut by a Muramasa katana that, hey, he was, or that was being carried by one of the samurai guards uh, that was guarding him as he was ex inspecting their ranks. In later days, though, his own wife and adopted son were allegedly executed or assassinated using a Muramasa sword. So all of these just, like, coincidences, I guess, stoked rumors that the Muramasa swords had it out for the Tokugawa family and that they had a special affinity for killing members of his clan. So this notion became so prevalent that Tokugawa eventually banned the Muramasa katana and ordered that they be melted down and forcibly collected. So in feudal Japan, uh, mo I think all swords were registered. They, the make, model, description, I don't know how, you, how, they would, how they would define it on the registration, but they were registered. So they were able to track down the owners of these swords pretty effortlessly and seize them and then uh, destroy them. So many of them were subsequently melted down or otherwise destroyed, but since they were so revered for their quality... Others were hidden or had all the distinguishing markings that would identify them as a Muramasa sword altered or sanded off. Even in the face of severe punishment for owning one, typically the typically what that meant is uh, if you got caught owning a Muramasa sword, they would force you to commit suicide. Uh, despite this, though, Muramasa katanas continued their trajectory to legendary status because a lot of them survived. Not a lot of them, but enough of them. Considering that these katana were thought to be able to seek out and kill the shogun and his family, there was also a renewed demand for the swords among Tokugawa's enemies, which drove the price up. As did the, you know, supply and demand market value shit because they were getting destroyed in bulk. They just got more expensive and rarer. Which resulted in some enterprising lesser swordsmiths forging pretty decent or clever replicas for profit. In fact, because of the number of such forgeries crafted during this era, it's really fucking hard to tell if a purported Muramasa katana is authentic or not. 
I know, I think of three. They just, they, oh my god, they found one at a fucking yard sale. Uh, an actual authentic one that was confirmed by the government group in Japan that handles that. Uh, often directly contrasted with the cursed chaotic evil of the Mormaza swords were those of another renowned swordsmith and priest who lived several hundred years earlier and is probably the most famous swordsmith of all time, and that was Masamuni, I believe how you say it, who is considered perhaps to be the greatest that ever lived. Uh, his reputation couldn't be more of a polar opposite than Muramasa. While Muramasa was seen as impulsive, violent, and psychotic, Masumi was mostly described as patient, wise, clear-headed, and even-tempered. His creations were famous for not only their supreme sharpness and durability, and the quality in an era when steel and perfections were common and technology was primitive, but also their elegant beauty. Uh, as much works of art as they were just perfect weapons of war. Perhaps it was the more benevolent, honorable qualities of Masamuni that led to stories that his qualities were channeled into his katana, and much as it was rumored that Muramasa's chaotic bloodlust had been passed on into his own, and it was often said rather than cutting, killing, and maiming indiscriminately, a Masumi katana would only cut what the owner wished it to, a sophisticated weapon for a more elegant time. If one were to strike out at something and decide they didn't want to do it any harm, a Masumi sword was said to fail to cut. Well, that's not good, despite its legendary sharpness. The swords also didn't cut into anything allegedly that was undeserving of it and would not kill the innocent. In essence, Masumi's katana was more like a blessed sword as opposed to Muramasa's cursed ones. I'm doing the fucking jerking off motion right now with my hands, but it is all part of legend. One old mythical tale illustrates this perception. In it, two swordsmiths are together one day. I heard this story as a sidebar told with the maker of the cursed swords and the maker of the blessed swords. So it was Muramasa and Masamunis. They're having this contest with each other, but that's probably not likely since they lived centuries apart. But uh, I'll go on. Anyway, it's just a story. So they began to debate who could make a finer katana, and they agreed to a competition kind of of sorts in which each of them would place their swords in a fast-moving stream to see which one cut the best. Muramasa's katana cut everything that it came in contact with. Trigs, twigs, branches, leaves, fish, small children, dogs, so on and so forth, indiscriminately cleaving everything with perfect precision. Masamuni's blade, on the other hand, cut twigs and leaves but spared the fish, small children, dogs, and uh, they bounced harmlessly off its edge. So... Masamuni gleefully declared himself as the winner, as his blade was clearly better at cutting things up. But a monk who passed through began curiously watching the whole thing and pointed out that it was, in fact, Masumi's sword that was better, as it did not cut anything that was undeserving of it. So in this case, living things were as Muramasa's displayed a cold and blind desire to kill. So this particular story is just a legend, obviously, but it displays the difference between the two swordsmiths. Uh and the powers that allegedly their creations had at the time. However, of all the swords that Masamuni forged, by far the most famous is called Hanju Masamuni, which was owned by a well-respected general named Hanju Shigenaga. During the Fourth Battle of... Oh, fuck that, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. In 1561, an enemy allegedly attacked Hanju with the sword, managing to cleave his sturdy helmet cleanly in half, yet remarkable, leaving his head totally intact, without so much as a scratch. 
Both combatants were doubtlessly surprised by this unexpected outcome, but it was Hanju who would use it to his advantage to vanquish his aggressor and thus claim the sword that it spared him for his own. So someone attacked him with this sword. He killed the guy, took the sword. When he retired from war, Hanju fell on hard times and sold the katana that bore his name to a powerful Toyotomi clan, who then passed it on to the shogun Tokugawa when they fell under his rule. The very same one who would, interestingly enough, ban the Muramasa swords. Which uh, could kind of lead you to believe that there might be some sort of a monopoly on swords. If you believe in that sort of thing, perhaps Muramasa swords were made to go away because they preferred the other school. Because they both had sword-making schools, and, uh, I don't know, I believe that there's a rational explanation for most things, and that would probably be a good starting point. So, the Tokugawa Shogun held on to the legendary sword for generations, passing it down to each new Shogun until the Shogun fell, when it was transferred into the private collection of the ousted Tokugawa family. When World War II came rumbling over the horizon and the Allied forces emerged victorious, all family-owned katanas, in a bizarre move, were ordered to be handed over to the United States government. Because uh, they... America ordered... I don't know how much you guys have read about, like, the occupation of Japan after the war, but there's some pretty fucking awful shit that happened. Um, not to... I'm not even going to comment on a, uh, on that, on a political or, like, socio standpoint, but there were some pretty strange and puzzling bills that were passed like, and forced upon the Japanese people post-World War II, seemingly just because we could. It seemed like they just did it to do it. Uh, but they ordered the forcible disarming of all Japanese families because, I mean, that makes sense. Like, hand over your guns and shit, but they also searched and seized houses for swords. It seemed like they were just uh, kind of like doing a museum loot. But family-owned katanas were ordered to be handed over, especially. And they were still, by the Japanese people, treated and revered as almost sacred heirlooms by the Japanese especially those that descended from once-great samurai families. So most of these weapons were destroyed or unceremoniously passed out to American soldiers as a joke, and uh, the legendary national treasure, the Hanju Masamuni, so steeped in history with lore, or history and lore, was one of these that just disappeared. The Tokugawa descendant handed over his family's entire priceless sword collection, dropping them off at a police station in Majiro in December of 1945, after which they were collected by a mysterious sergeant of the United States 7th Cavalry, known only as Coldy Bamor, uh, before seeming to vanish off the face of the fucking earth. The sword has not been seen since. Considering the importance of this particular cultural artifact, it was probably recognized as valuable and spared from being melted down or sold from scrap metal, but nobody knows. Although many of many other Masamuni swords have survived into the present day. All we know is that this revered and possibly magic sword and national sacred treasure of Japan, known as the Hanju Masamuni, has faded into history, possibly into some private collection somewhere. Its great legacy buried under a coating of dust. Avid sword enthusiasts have spent a lot of time and effort trying to track down that sword, but it's never been found, and its ultimate fate remains a fucking mystery. Huh. Dirt is everywhere. Filthy germs are everywhere. Death is everywhere. It's time to sanitize everything, including yourself. 
Make your life safe again with Poncha's Advanced Hand Sanitizer. During the day, you are exposed to literally millions of life-threatening germs and viruses. Use Poncha's Advanced Hand Sanitizer several times an hour and protect yourself and your loved ones. It's not neurosis, it's good hygiene. Poncha's is so hard on germs, it burns off the top layer of your skin, leaving you clean and fresh. And it's so strong, it will one day create a drug-resistant super bacteria that will wipe out half of mankind. Pontius, it's time to sanitize everything. Sanitize this. One sword with origins more decidedly cloaked in pure legend is the one known as the Kusanagi, also known as the grass-cutting sword. Or it's even more impressive original name, meaning the sword of the gathering clouds of heaven. According to the lore, a god of storms by the name of Susanoo engaged in, co in combat uh, with an evil eight-headed serpent called the Yamato no Araki, which he eventually defeated and then began cutting off each of its heads and tails. Within one of the fearsome beast tails was found a fabulous sword, which he called uh, the Ame no Maraka Momo no Tur... Fucking fuck that. And gifted it to the sun goddess of uh, the name... Amaterasu? In later centuries, this sword came into the possession of a warrior named Yamato Takahiro, which he carried into battle and discovered it to have rather amazing powers. In one incident, Yamato is said to have been ambushed while on a hunting trip by a group of warriors who killed his horse and set the field of long grass on fire with flaming arrows. Thinking he was doomed to a fiery death and frantically cutting at the burning grass to staunch the incoming spread of the fire, Yamato was surprised to discover that his sword had the power to control the wind, and to, he was able to aim powerful gusts in any direction he lashed out at. This enabled him to push the fire in the direction of his enemies and allow him to escape his ordeal, after which he rechristened the magic sword, uh, the sword of brass cutting or whatever the fuck. This tale is very prevalent in Japanese folklore and appears in the ancient 8th century text of Kojiki, or the uh, Records of Ancient Matters which is the Tome of Historical Myths, as well as the Nihon Shoki, also called the Chronicles of Japan, which is an 8th century text of a more factual record, but also it's in there. So although this sword, with its bizarre origin story and purported wind power, seems like it must be bullshit, it has long been considered to be an actual real sword, and according to the Nihon Shoki, which is a largely reliable record for the most part, this sword did exist and was moved from the Imperial Palace to a shrine, uh, in 688, because it was thought to be somewhat cursed by the time, and it was blamed for Emperor Tenmu's deteriorating health. Despite this newfound sinister reputation as a bearer of illness, nevertheless, this sword was considered a precious national treasure, one of the imperial regalia of Japan, and was sequestered within the shrine for safekeeping. After the sword arrived at the shrine, it was hidden away from public view, allegedly wrapped up in a wooden box with a stone embedded in it. Supposedly only brought out for very special occasions, such as imperial coronation ceremonies. And even then, it remains ensconced within layers of wrapping and secured within its box. The sword is kept so secretive that very few have even seen it. And indeed, it is unclear whether it truly exists at the shrine or not. The Shinto priest of the shrine refused to display it, and even most of them have never laid eyes on the sword itself, only its box. Those who have gazed upon the sword are said to have met great misfortune as is the case with the Shinto priest Matsuoko Masanao and some companions who claimed to have stolen a glance at it while replacing the sword's box during the Edo period. Although they were able to describe the wooden box 
held within it another stone box lined with gold, as well as what the sword itself looked like with the blade shaped like a calamus leaf and an, it was an off metallic white color. Everybody who looked upon it purportedly fell violently ill and then died, and the only survivor would be Matsuoko. This is the last known time the sword has been seen outside of its box, and even within the box, it's rarely glimpsed. The last time this box was seen by anybody is apparently during the ceremony in which Emperor Akahito took the imperial throne in 1989. Although Atsuta's shrine is the most commonly accepted current resting place for this sword, its existence is still in question, and there are other tales that speak of different fates for the legendary sword. According to some accounts, such as one from a collection of historical stories called the Tale of Haiki, the sword was lost at sea when the emperor committed suicide by jumping into the sea while holding it after a defeat in a naval battle in 1185 during the Battle of Dan-no-Ura. Yet another tale tells of the treacherous visiting monk who stole the sword and then proceeded to have his ship sank at, at, uh, at sea during his escape. I'm sorry. Proceeded to have his ship sink in the middle of the ocean during his escape. In this version of events, could later find the sword again because it washed up on a beach where it was to be taken into possession by priests there and then passed into the unknown. For its, its part, though, the Japanese government has never confirmed or denied any of these various stories nor even whether the sword exists or not. I think it's kind of just fun to see where the legend goes. Although for the most part, it is known that these swords exist, uh, because it can be assumed, at least, that all three of them exist, because the Masamuni and the Mormaskatanas can still be seen in display, in displays in private museums or in private collections. And historical records suggest that the great Hanju Masamuni and the Kusanagi no Tsuguri at least did exist in some form. It's hard to say if any of these swords ever had any of the purported powers or curses that were attributed to them. Probably not, but it's a good story, and it's pretty good advertising. Many of these tales have potential truth to them uh, that's become so married to the legend and myth that it's hard to untangle the two. And even fairly reliable historical, historical accounts from the era are not always clear on how much the facts, in quotes, uh, may have been colored by the folklore and legend. Nevertheless, these tales and accounts provide a fascinating look into the world of alleged magic swords and the history of these objects within the lore of Japan. Whether their powers were real or not, our fascination with such stories and the intriguing, mysterious nature of them certainly are. The kind of water you drink says a lot about the type of person you are. Flow. It's time to take hydration seriously. Flow. Flow. Your local water is terrible. It's time to make hydration real. Flow. That's why we filtered it, put it in a fancy bottle, and are marketing it using famous actors. Flow. It's time to make hydration creative. Are you still drinking tap water? What's wrong with you. It's time to make hydration flow. flow. Drink flow. Infused with oxygen and hydrogen. Flow. If you're active or at least want to appear to be, there's only one hydration solution. Flow. flow. Alright, so let's, uh, I want to share this story with you. So in the regards to the Mormasa swords, I've said that numerous forgeries have been made over the years, and a lot of them started around the same time period that they were banned. So a lot of these forgeries are hundreds of years old. Uh, if you're familiar with violins, it's going to be a lot like a Stradivarius, where you can buy a 500-year-old clone, or not a 500-year-old, but maybe a 300-year-old 
authentic reproduction that's just a fucking knockoff from the era. So it is valuable, eh, kind of, just in a historical sense, but not valuable because it's obviously not worth what the real one would be worth, but it's worth something because it's still old and it still emulates the style, so it's still kind of close, hopefully, to it. But we're not, I'm not going to get into the whole politics of a fucking of a clone. Uh, but numerous forgeries have been made over the years, making it difficult today to authenticate the Muramasa blades. Uh, if found and authenticated, these swords are typically priced at over a million dollars. And I, <laughs> speaking of a million dollar sword, I just did a search on, uh, on, I'd like to look at eBay just to see if I could find anything weird. Oftentimes I'll type in like old cursed whatever and then see what pops up. Uh, I've got some pretty good crusader rings from doing this actually, but this fucking dipshit ass cunt bitch uh, has World War II Japanese sword, ultra rare. Reverse edge blade, museum piece. Uh, he's advertising it as a museum piece, yet he's selling it on eBay in Dallas, Texas for a million dollars with free shipping. Thank you very much, man. Go fuck yourself. It's a museum piece and you're hawking it on eBay. You're a piece of shit. One tiny ding. No cracks or bends. No blisters. Fuck you. Cutting edge. Yeah, whatever. And the sword, whole sword is 19 inches long, very sharp, heavy. So these were essentially just probably stolen from the Japanese people. But if you look for antique Japanese army sword on eBay, you'll be fucking disgusted with, like, what pops up. Because you can tell these are fucking old. Vintage. World War II Japanese sword. Fuck you for listing that as vintage. World War II Japanese sword. Old Japanese samurai sword. And they all look to be from the same era because they all have the, uh... They all have all the the traits of the World War II stuff. Japanese army officer sword. But anyway, so back to the original story. There was a guy in Vernon who currently owns a sword to believe to be a true, authentic Muramasa, and he found it at a fucking garage sale. Said he purchased the sword from the granddaughter of General Wainwright, who had been rumored to have gained possession of the sword after... Tamayuki Yamashita, a Japanese general of the Imperial Japanese Army during World War II, was forced to surrender it. The woman the collector said he bought it from had not authenticated it at the time of purchase. He said he found it interesting and also wasn't sure if it was authentic when he bought it, but once in his possession, he sent it to a Japanese sword society for proof of authentication. The woman I bought it from was Wainwright's granddaughter, and she just happened to be selling a bunch of her grandpa's shit, and I just thought it was cool. I feel like she probably thought it was a big deal, but never went through the trouble of having it authenticated. God fucking damn it, you're an idiot. I did, and it turned out to be a true Muramasa. Yeah, that's one of those things where she, I hope, is fucking crying her way to the bank. I just sold a bunch of old Grandpa Wainwright's war stuff. Dipshit. If I had a granddaughter like this, I would fucking kill myself. While the owner did not want to disclose how much he paid for the blade. Like, say, I only have quarters, but I'll give you, uh... I'll give you $21.50 for it. How's that sound, huh? Uh, do you have a 20? I don't want to go chain. I don't want to go to Coinstar. Fucking asshole. Uh, he said the cost was not the typical price tag you'd find at a rummage sale. Okay, $15, $15 right? $15. I'm certain he nickeled and dimed her on it. But, well, see, I, uh, I want to give you 50 bucks for it, but... Uh, I just don't know if it's real or not. I don't want to take that chance. $50 is a lot of work in for me. Oh, 
Okay, I'll take... I'll take your $15 bill. Ugh. And that asshole had it authenticated and still didn't put it in a museum. Which... I'm no saint, but I believe there's certain things that just shouldn't... shouldn't be in private collections. There's certain things that people should see. And they should be stored by people that know what they're doing. Preserved for later generations. For example, if I was digging in my backyard, okay, let me, let me rephrase it. If I lived in Palestine and I was digging in my backyard and I found some sort of symbolic ancient text written down, I think I'm going to wait three generations and sell it at a fucking yard sale? What the fuck is wrong with you? <sighs> ah, God damn it. I hate people. In San Andreas, we recycle everything, including the tired old adage that we're going to pull ourselves out of this financial shithole. But you can pull yourself out of your financial situation by donating your car to an unspecified, ambiguous charity. It's shipped to China to be disassembled by children who go blind from mercury exposure while you get a healthy tax write-off. We rip off charities while you rip off Uncle Sam by massively overvaluing that rust bucket in your tax returns. And everyone's the winner. Donate your car today. Well, on that note, I am out of time. But I appreciate you guys for tuning back in. Thank you very much for continuing to listen to this podcast and for rating me five stars in the iTunes store. If you could tell your friends about it, that would be much appreciated. Uh, I can see every time that you guys do, and I can see the consistent cities that have been slowly growing in the listener base and holy fuck i just checked my listeners and uh, it is up considerably so keep doing what you're doing guys i appreciate you guys spreading the word thank you very much for the support and the kind words when you email me uh, i understand that i respond to emails like a sluggish old man but it's not for lack of wanting to it's just i'm old and i work graveyard shift jobs so i oftentimes fall asleep while shitting so it's nothing personal i just uh, don't get anything done in a timely fashion because i'm usually asleep or thinking about sleeping usually however oh man speaking of the let's talk about the most influential pe people in cities so max thank you very much in chicago for three percent of all of my listener base is in chicago right now that's number one three percent of all listeners are from chicago illinois thank you very much chicago thank you very much max Closely followed, not even closely followed, a full percentage down, Los Angeles, California, Brooklyn, New York, Denver, Colorado, Orlando, Florida, Salt Lake City, Utah, Dallas, Texas, New York, San Antonio, Texas, Miami, Florida, Texas. You guys have consistently been great listener base. Thank you very much. I appreciate you guys. And um, I appreciate each and every one of you for consistently tuning in to make this show possible. And uh, let it be said that you can email me at any time to tell me how much you hate me or how offensive I am at springheeljack at anthologyofhorror.com. I look forward to hearing your emails, and although I may not respond the same day, I promise you I will get back to you. And uh, I do genuinely appreciate hearing from you guys. I take constructive criticism relatively well, so if you have anything you think I could do better, worst thing you can do, or I mean, not the worst thing you can do, Please email me and tell me what I could do better so that I can improve the show for you. 
I had something else to tell you. Oh, yes, go to anthologyofhorror.com, where you can see the fancy media browser that oftentimes, to keep myself entertained, I'll change the color of, so that's exciting. And uh, also, if you're so inclined, I have crunched some numbers, and based on the most recent listener count, if you, if you guys all chose to donate $1 every month, maybe I could afford food. No, <laughs> just kidding. I can afford food. But if you guys all donated a dollar a month, I could probably take a couple extra days off from work every week and do this a lot more often. Something to consider. I don't expect anything from anyone, but I do appreciate your support as it is right now. And if you're so inclined to donate to the Patreon, the link can be found at anthologyofhorror.com in the top right corner. I think it's a either a dollar sign or a Bitcoin symbol or a crying or